Uh, we're continuing in Genesis. We're in 28, verses 10 through 22. I'm going to wrap up this chapter today. And uh, hear now God's word. Now, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place! There is none other, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil over the top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me a bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you often reveal the greatest truths to those who come to you like little children, and that sometimes you reveal yourself to people who aren't even looking for you, just as you told Paul. In Romans. Help us to trust you to reveal the truth to us as we think it through. Help us to see the greatness of Jesus that we might be more fully satisfied in him, for it is in his name that we ask. Amen. The words heaven's gate might bring different memories to you depending on your own personal history. The first thing I think of when I hear the words Heaven's Gate is the movie I never saw by a director who had won an Academy Award for The Deer Hunter, Michael Camino. His next greatly anticipated movie, I think it was supposed to be a Western, was called Heaven's Gate, and it remains one of the biggest flops to have ever existed. And it permanently sunk his career as a director wasn't very heavenly for him now, was it? Some of you might think of a few years back of a particular cult called Heaven's Gate that, ex that 
their strange theology, so to speak, was that when a, this particular comet was going by, that there was a spaceship on it, and if they killed themselves at the precise right moment, they would join the aliens on the spaceship. Now, how is that for crazy? Okay. But the idea here, where can God be found? Let's, let's pick up the idea from the cult. Where can God be found? This is a question that has existed throughout most of human existence. Where can we go to meet God? Some people think you have to go to a particular place. Muslims believe that even though they can go meet God wherever they are, but they also, as part of being a good Muslim, once in your life you're supposed to make a pilgrimage to Mecca because that is the most holy place. That God's presence is special there. There are some people who think that going to Jerusalem means that they go to some place really special, that God is for like more intense there in Jerusalem than he is somewhere else in the world? That's an important question. Where is it that we must go to meet God? And the answer is not what we might think it is. The answer is that we meet God in a person, Jesus, not a place. Let's start with this. That Jesus is the gate of heaven where God draws near. We're seeing this in the context of the story of Jacob. Jacob, who has sinned against his brother and sinned against his father, who, with his mother's ploy, has been sent out to get a, a wife who's not one of those Canaanite women, okay, who's going to worship a false god. He's been sent out, but guess what? He has nothing. He's penniless. He has a rock for a pillow, not even a pack. I'm thinking I would not want to sleep on a rock. Okay, I already have problems with my neck. This would not help. Okay, But he's on his long journey to Haran to go back to um, his mother's family there in Haran to find himself a wife. He's 55 miles out. Okay, He's outside of a Canaanite town called Lutz, which was actually a fairly significant town, but he's not inside the town, which indicates to me that he probably has no money. And so he, since it's nighttime and there's no street lamps, Okay, it's sort of like Tucson. Okay, it's hard to drive at night; can't see a thing. He doesn't want to travel in the in the darkness of the wilderness at night, and so he picks a place there where he's going to sleep. He finds a rock. He uses that as a pillow, and he has a dream. And I'm grateful that his dream is nothing like the dream I had last night. I had a very strange dream last night. It is a dream that probably, well. All of us have these dreams, but pastors have them in a different sort of way. Um, it's dreams of your own incompetence. All of your insecurities and fears rise to the surface in the midst of your dream. And so my dream, I will not bore you with the details, but basically I was back in Florida trying to lead a Resurrection Day worship service with lots of people out there, and everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Those are the dreams that haunt me at night, just so you know. Okay? Thankfully, they're not all that frequent. But he did not have one of those sorts of dreams. We see that Jacob is not seeking God in this. Okay? 
In the ancient Near East, in his time, people would seek God via dreams, but what they would do at that time is they would go sleep in the temple of their God. There was a room you could go. Now, you know, that's a little unusual for us, right? That'd be sort of like, you know, Ken wanting to hear from God. Ken shows up, comes in, sleeps here at night, thinking that the dreams he gets here are going to be special. Okay? That's the mindset of the people then. But Jacob's not doing that. He just goes to bed and has a dream. So this is not an instance of Jacob pursuing God in any way, shape, or form, but really it is God seeking Jacob. Jacob, sinful Jacob, helpless, homeless now, okay, frightened and impoverished. He's got nothing, and he's going to cross the wilderness in search of a bride that he can't even pay for. That's Jacob's life. Isn't that a great one? See what his sin has brought, and yet God is still at work. God is seeking Jacob. And what he sees is translated as ladder. This is the only time in the Bible that this particular word appears. So it can mean something of of a ladder, or it could refer to a staircase. But either way, whether it's just a ladder or like a ziggurat, kind of a staircase that winds its way up, um, it goes to heaven. Now, some of you just thought of Led Zeppelin. Get that out of your head. (laughs) That's not what this is, okay? Get that out of your head. Get that old spiritual song, Climbing Jacob's Ladder, out of your head, because Jacob is not the one climbing the ladder, okay? He sees this ladder that goes all the way up. He did not climb it. This is not, this is not Jack and the Beanstalk, okay? Nothing like that as well. But there are blessings that are found here, but it's not by Jacob's doing. What he sees is that angels are going up and down the ladder. They're ascending and they're descending. And so he he sees that these angels are coming to do, accomplish the purpose and the will of the God who is at the top of the ladder. They are servants of His, which is similar to what we read in Hebrews 1. Are not they, meaning the angels, um, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who who are to inherit salvation? And so angels, although they're in this picture here, and they're in this dream, are actually servants of those who inherit salvation. They come to bring God's blessings to those people. The point here, though, don't miss it, it's not about angels. Angels, nice. Angels, good. We We like what God does through angels. But that's not the point. Neither is the point what he does or what we should do. The point really is all about what God does. What we see is that the Lord is above it or beside it. Okay? That preposition can mean above and beside. It's the same thing that we find in the very first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no gods before me or, some say, beside me. Okay? We're not sure which it is, and it's not really important which it is. He is present. He is the one that matters because he is the one who's about to speak. He is the one who is transcendent. He's above all of the the events of Jacob's life, but also imminent in that he is involved in the affairs 
of Jacob's life. He's holy and he's just. He's a, he's a control. He has power. And yet he's also engaged in the details of Jacob's life. This is the one that Jacob sees. This is the one that reveals himself to Jacob. Now Jacob, when he wakes up, he says that surely this is the gate of heaven. The idea meaning that this is the place of access to heaven. Now we've already seen one gate of heaven in scripture, and that was Babel. The tower that they built was meant to be a gate to heaven, a giant ziggurat by which they could ascend up into the heavens and pull down glory, pull down blessing. And of course, what did God do? He laughed and he scattered them and gave them different languages. Okay, So this is, from from Jacob's perspective, this, not Babel, is the gate of heaven. Let's fast forward all the way through the Old Testament into John 1, where we have Jesus meeting Nathanael. What has happened? Nathanael's friend had told him, you know, I found the Messiah. And Jesus says, you know, I saw you under the tree. What was he doing under the tree? Makes me think that he was probably praying that God would reveal the Messiah to him. That's just my thought. But what he says is that you will see greater things than this. You will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's referring to what Jacob sees in the vision. And he places himself as the ladder that the, or the staircase that the angels go up and down. Which leads us to a grammatical issue in Genesis. The referent, the it, the going up and down it, does it refer to a ladder or does it refer to Jacob, the person? D.A. Carson in his commentary on John says that it's referring to Jacob, the person. And so Jacob functions as a type of Christ. He's pointing us to Christ and what Christ will do. Jesus is the one who provides us access to heaven, that the servants of salvation on our behalf rise, ascend and descend on him and him alone. But think about that for a second. He's telling Nathaniel that you will see this. You will see what only Jacob had ever seen. That the the great mysteries of the gospel are going to be opened up to you and all who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So we have access to heaven in a person, not a place. There's no special place where we go to meet God. We encounter God in Jesus. Okay, let's go to the second part of this is that Jesus is the one who brings all God's covenant blessings. 
We see that, that God here, in speaking to Jacob, reveals himself first as the Almighty God, which we have talked about before. Uh, last week we, we talked a bit about that. But he says that I am the God of Abraham, your father, and of Isaac. Jesus, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two, takes this phraseology to show the Sadducees that they do not understand Scripture, that there really is a thing called the resurrection, and that God is not the God of the dead, but He is really the God of the living, because Abraham lived in the face of God even during earthly, Jesus' earthly ministry. And Jacob did too, and Isaac did too. He reveals himself as the God of the living. Abraham lives with him in his presence. And so here, the Lord condescends to encourage this fearful man by giving him both long-term and short-term promises. And so he confirms the long-term covenant promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17. He's reaffirming that when, when Isaac spoke these words over him before he sent him out, it's not just a word game, it's not just a, a, a nice feeling, but God is saying, yes, I'm going to do that. I am God Almighty, the same one that your father spoke about, and I'm going to do exactly what I promised I would do. I have the power. So these are long-term promises that are given to him. First, the land. Though he is leaving the land in disgrace, he has been sent out from his father's home. Though he leaves in disgrace, he and his offspring will receive it. That's long term. That's actually not going to happen until Exodus. But Moses wants the Exodus generation to know, do you know why you're going into that land? Because that is the land that God promised your fathers. He's keeping his promise. Let's go. Don't be afraid. Let's go. He's God Almighty. Let's go. It's a land grant. God can freely give this to whomever he wants, and he has chosen to give it to us. Let's go. So the land. Then there's the offspring. Funny that he would speak this to a man who wasn't even married yet. Okay? So they're in, included here is the promise of a wife. <laughs> All right? But though he's not even married, his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. It's, it, it's sort of, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because what was it always usually for Abraham? The stars in the sky. And now it's the dust of the earth. Not sure what the significance of that might be. But still, we see that in the time of Exodus, what has happened? God has kept that promise. There are about a million and a half people. They're like the dust of the earth. They're, all, they're going to get even larger. But God has kept that promise, which should have encouraged them that he will keep the promise of the land. Okay, There's an already not yet aspect that the, the Exodus generation had experienced. They had already experienced some of the promises of God coming to fulfillment, and they're waiting for the not yet ones to come to fulfillment. And that's in, it's in process, and they're about to experience that. So the already should give them hope for the not yet. Sort of sounds like us today, doesn't it? 
We'll talk a bit about that in a few moments. But, the, but okay, God is, was going to keep that promise. And then he goes to the, the third thing. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you and your offspring. All the earth would be blessed in Jacob. Meaning that all the angels who come down Jacob that bring blessing, the blessings of, of salvation, are going to come, going to eventually go to all the families of the earth. It's not Right now it's just about your family, but soon it will be every family. He's promising even here the expansion of the, of the covenant promises to the whole earth. Messiah particularly is going to come through his offspring, and that Messiah will bless the whole world. And so Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these, this promise. We see in Matthew 1, that's the point of the whole gospel. Because Matthew lays out, he wants you to know, he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. He is the one whom, whom God is going to fulfill the covenant promises to Abraham and to David. And when you get that, you begin to see more and more of what is going on in the Gospel of Matthew, of how he really is. Now it makes sense why he mentions the Gentiles, the other people of the earth who are being blessed through Messiah. Okay? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. He brings blessing, but we see also in John 1, a little bit earlier, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's hand, has made him known to us. Okay. John there in 18 refers back to the very first verse of, that, of, of John's gospel, the one who was with God and is God. What does he do? He makes God known to us. He reveals who God is that we might know Him and have eternal life. And so, as we think about this text, part of, and, and what Jesus does with it in John 1, okay, we're reminded that there is no hope to know God and to enjoy eternal life apart from Jesus. Mecca won't help you. Jerusalem won't help you. Confucius or Buddha won't help you. It is only him. He is the only one as the Son of Man through whom salvation and the knowledge of God can be found. Is that where you look? Or are you relying on ritual to do these things? And so we have these long-term covenant promises, but but God also gives these short-term promises that are a little more specific to Jacob himself, but we also see that they have application to us as well. They give him assurance that the long-term covenant promises will come true. And he starts off with, I am with you. Now note that. It is not, I will be with you. It's implying that. But he already is with him. Which makes no sense 
in some ways, precisely because think of who Jacob is. He's not a guy that you look at and go, God's with him. You can see the evidence of, of grace in that guy's life. He's probably one of the last you'd think of saying that about. What, what characterizes his life? Scheming, trickery, deception, greed. That's, those aren't the marks to, that we think of of someone who, whose God is with that person. And yet God is saying, despite you, the fact that you are a sinner, despite the fact that you don't even worship me yet, I'm with you. I am with you. I'm going to be with you even in Haran. A long ways away. The Lord is no tribal deity whose jurisdiction ends at the border. That was a common idea that people had in that day. That the, you know, here is the God of this town, and then there's the God of this town, and really the only way for the God of town A to have influence in town B is for town A to conquer town B. Okay? Your God had, had boundaries, and really to, ex- to expand those boundaries meant conquer. Um, for some reason, my mind goes to, some of you may recognize this, Sheriff Buford T. Justice, Smokey and the Bandit. He didn't recognize the jurisdiction, the end of his jurisdiction, and chased Burt Reynolds across the border to get back the wife, the fiancé of his son. Okay? God crosses all the boundaries. There's no border for him. There are for us, but not for him. He is the God of the entire earth. To the ends of the earth, he is God. And so there's no place that Jacob can go that is outside of God's jurisdiction, responsibility, authority, control, however you want to look at it. He needs to know this now because he's about to meet some guy who is not really um, what he wants in a knuckle. Okay, So I am with you, and additionally, I will keep you. He's going to guard him. He's going to protect him. The Almighty One is going to guard him. Now, that's pretty good security, isn't it? I think it's a whole lot better than ADT. Yes. Some of us are frustrated with good old ADT here at uh, Desert Springs. But uh, he's, he's able to do that which he promises to do. There's no one who's going to be bigger and badder than God who can, who can hurt Jacob. And so even as he struggles with Laban, he can take comfort in the fact that God is still going to guard him. That though Laban may hurt him, he will not destroy him. It's very important for him to recognize, lest he lose hope under the bondage that he experiences from Laban, just as Israel prospered under the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. God was with them. They didn't think it, but he was with them. He was protecting them, keeping them. But not only that, but he he said, I will bring you back. 
It is not Rebecca who's going to bring you back. It is going to be me, the living God, who will accomplish this. So again, the, the, the original audience of this, the people either still in Egypt or now in the wilderness were to read this and go, God is bringing us back. God is keeping the promise. Just as He kept the promise to our father, Jacob, He brought him back to the promised land. He's bringing us back now. They're to take courage and comfort from this reality, this truth. Just as we on this side of the cross are to take comfort in the fact that Jesus has promised to be with us, that He has promised to protect us, He has us in His hand. And there is no one that can snatch us out. That's that's a promise of protection. Okay, from John 10. And he's going to bring us into the fulfillment that he promised. Okay? The, the, the inheritance of the entire world is going to be ours. The renewed earth, freed from the curse, is going to be ours. We're going to inherit it. He's going to keep that promise. As he says in Matthew 28, even to the ends of the age. So in addition to Jesus being the fulfillment of this, he's also the one who brings about the fulfillment for us. So we see that we, 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 don't, we can't seek God's covenant blessings in our efforts, in our rituals. We can only seek them in Christ. In Christ alone, He brings all of these things to us. But there, there's also a response on our part to this. Jesus is the one to whom we bring our covenant obligations. This text is laying out through Jacob the proper response that Israel ought to have to God after the Exodus. After they've been freed from the, their bondage in, in Egypt and then brought into the promised land. It's, it's meant to do that, to function in that way. But note Jacob's response first. He has a mixture of faith and unbelief. He is both afraid and in awe. That's the, that's the, one of the unique characteristics of Hebrew is yira, the word that is found there, means both awe and afraid. Reverence and fear. I think we've probably, most of us have probably had those experiences of where it's almost simultaneously we're experiencing awe and fear. One of my friends says that I saw a UFO once. It was an unidentified flying object, but it was not from outer space. There were no little green men in it. I just didn't know what it was. And um, actually, Amy and I saw it. So she can verify we saw this thing. In the night sky of Florida, and there was a sense of, I felt, I sensed both awe and fear. Because what we saw was really amazing in some respects. Um, you know, the light was coming down. There were, there were like a bunch of different lights, but then they would go back up and they, they were like synchronized. It was really kind of funky. Um, now, there is a naval, I mean, uh, an Air Force bombing range by our house in Florida, um, but I don't know. Nonetheless, so there was sort of like an awe of, wow, that's really cool, that's amazing, but also like, what's really going on here? So, is it falling skies? 
there are aliens. No, right? we didn't think about aliens. But there was, there was that dual response that was there. And part of that dual response for him is that he particularly did not realize God was present. He's in awe that God is present, but he's also afraid because he knows a little bit about who he is, probably. He didn't realize God was present. Fortunately for the Israelites in the wilderness, they had the pillar of smoke and fire. They knew God was present. But we sometimes don't realize God is present because we do not see him. We, we fall into the trap of thinking he's not there. But what we see is that there's going to be a transformation that is made in his life, in Jacob's life, that mirrors the transformation that is made in our lives. He is going to go from a worldly man to a worshiper of God. And this is step one. This is not the whole enchilada. Okay, This is going to be a long process that culminates when he meets God again, when he's about to come into the land. He's going to go from worldly to worshiper. And so he still has some worldly ideas when it comes to worship. He renames this place Bethel, house of God, thinking that God dwells here, that, that this is a special place, Okay, that, that God would continue to reveal himself in this place. And what happened is that Bethel ends up becoming a stumbling block to the northern kingdom. When Jeroboam comes along and, and, and God tears part of the kingdom from Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the, the northern kingdom does not want the people to go back into Jerusalem to worship. So what Rehoboam decides to do is to set up alternative worship sites. It's a multi-site church. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. And one of those two places was Bethel. And so they built another temple at Bethel, the house of God, precisely because of this text. They go, oh, God's there. Let's build it there. Let's keep the people from going and being, you know, um, seduced by uh, Rehoboam. Okay. And false worship began to take place in the northern kingdom. They began to bring in the worship of the Canaanites and merge it with the worship of the one true God at Bethel. Okay? It becomes a stumbling block precisely because they thought it was about the place. If the place is right, everything else will be okay. And it wasn't. We see in Amos 5, God calling down judgment upon God's people. He says, he's offering hope though, seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal, which is a a place that will be significant later on in um, the life of Israel, okay, where they reaffirmed the covenant with God before they entered the promised land. All the men were circumcised at Gilgal. Okay? So don't go to these places that were significant in your past because they're not significant now because it's not about place. Or cross over into Beersheba. Okay? We're familiar with that one. Okay? That's where uh, J- uh, Isaac was living. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So it's not about place. 
We see when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, what does she try to argue about? Which place you worship God? Is it Jerusalem or is it Gerizim? And Jesus says, a time is coming where it's not going to matter. Okay, The hour is coming and is now here, because Jesus is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. It's not about where. It's about who and how. And so we worship God through faith in Christ, wherever we are. We're to worship Him in the Spirit and in truth, not according to our own man-made ideas of what worship is and where worship takes place and how worship takes place. We depend upon God and what He has revealed to us in the Scriptures. Now, Jacob sort of hedges his bet. See, that's why I say he's not a worshiper yet. He says, if you do all this, if you protect me, if you provide food and clothing for me, and if you bring me back, then you will be my God. He's basing his future worship and commitment to the Lord upon whether or not God keeps his promises. Okay, he's sort of, That's why I say he's sort of hedging his bets here. His future vows are contingent on God's faithfulness. In other words, Jacob is not all in yet. Okay? That, that, that's sort of a phrase for, I'm, I'm still following the Red Sox saga after, you know, destructing and not making the playoffs. And one of the phrases that sort of has come up in that whole context is whether or not players or the coach were all in meaning they're all going in the same direction, they're all fully committed to the same goal. And we see here that Jacob is sort of along for the ride. And if God does everything God says he's going to do, then I'll be all in. He wants to live by sight, not faith. But we wrestle with the same thing. We hate to live by faith. We want to live by sight. And there's a, we struggle with being fully committed, fully consecrated to Him, being all in. And that's because we don't trust Him to keep His word. We're a little bit like Jacob when it comes down to it. So he promises that you will be my God because apparently Yahweh was not his God yet. He wants God to prove himself. Think about Israel for a moment. They were delivered from bondage, slavery in Egypt. They didn't have the full fullness of the promise yet. They weren't in the promised land yet, and yet they were to worship God in the wilderness. They had to be fully in, all in. And what happened was that first generation wasn't all in. You had two guys that were, Joshua and Caleb. 
And that was it. They were supposed to worship Him beginning in the now. In light of the fact that God had promised the future. They were not to hesitate and withhold their worship and obedience until the time they got in the promised land. Okay. Similarly for us, we're not to withhold our worship and obedience until we get <laughs> free from these sinful bodies. Well, you know, when God renews the heavens and the earth, then I'm all in. We've got to be all in now to enjoy the then. Okay. So, additionally, he makes the vow, but, but part of the vow is this idea of, the, I will give a full tenth. Yes, tithe. He, he promises that he will tithe a tangible way of expressing that commitment to God, which then was ordained by God as what was part of the Israelite worship. A physical tangible expression of allegiance and thanksgiving. Okay? But again, notice this. He's saying, when I get back, I'll do this. When I get back. Okay. For us who live on this side of the cross... We recognize that God has indeed proven himself with the blood of the new covenant. There is an already aspect to our salvation. We are already justified, meaning we're already accepted by God as fully righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Okay? We already have that. We are already being progressively sanctified. We already have adoption as sons. There are many aspects. We already have the Holy Spirit. There are many aspects that we already possess, but there are some that we do not yet possess. We are not freed from sin yet. We are not living in the new renewed earth yet though there are some people who think we do. But they're just crazy, okay? Full preterism, bad idea. If you don't know what I just said, that's okay. <laughs> All right? You don't need to know. If you feel, feel compelled, we'll do lunch. I'll explain it to you. Um, but anyway, okay, he, we, we have enough to co- commit to go all in on. We don't need, there shouldn't be any holding back with God. The, the sense that, you know, I'll, I'll obey you up to this point, but no further. I'll trust you with this part of my life, but not that part of my life. Do you understand? He says, give it all. Bring it all to me. Be fully committed. Fully connected. Okay? You know, and, and if we have entered the covenant of grace through faith, we are to fulfill our covenant obligations by grace, meaning we worship by grace. We worship God through Christ who, has himself, who himself gained access for us. Ephesians 2. 
Okay, we come in the power of the Spirit. That's what, that's what it, Paul says in, in Ephesians 2. But the access has been granted to us because of Christ. That sort of connects with what we're talking about from John 4 with the woman at the well. People who worship in spirit and truth. Okay? So we need to check our self-righteousness at the door. Our list of good things we did for God this week. Whatever it is. It has no place. It's all what Christ has done. He is our access. He is the gate of heaven that we enter. Whoa, I just saw the time. Um, okay, and, and so we do this now as people who are justified in being sanctified, people who await the renewed earth and glorification. We worship in the already, not yet. But we are to worship fully in the already, not yet. So we're also, like them, to bring tangible signs, tokens of our allegiance and our gratitude for provision to worship. We talked about this Sunday at the, a little bit at the, the meeting we had with the, some of the women about the women's ministry, and it was during a break in our discussions. And some churches have uh, places where you can donate online. And we, I don't know how we even got there, but said, so, you know, we're, we're not doing that. Because giving is meant to be an act of worship. It's one of the ways that we worship and we say thank you. We don't want to disconnect giving from worship because God has joined them together. That's why we want to do it in the worship service, ideally. So it's still appropriate for us to bring tangible signs of our allegiance, of our gratitude to God. So worship is often distorted in a fallen world. Uh, you know, its location is distorted by thinking that there are special places. Its purpose is distorted by our, our self-righteousness. Its acts are distorted by clinging to rituals. But biblical worship in a fallen world sees that all, God, all God's covenant promises are, uh, seeks them all in Christ. Ugh, my brain is melting. Biblical worship in a fallen world recognizes that God has already done many things and we bring signs of our allegiance until he fulfills that which remains. So, are you all in? Or are you along for the ride? Let's pray. Father, we often struggle with worship. We struggle in worship. It easily becomes all about us or what we can do is some sort of effort to earn your pleasure, your love, your blessing. So help us to look outside of ourselves to see Christ, to see the Son of Man as the gate of heaven as well as our righteousness. Help us to respond to this amazing grace appropriately with joy, with gratitude, with love, faith, and shape our worshiping hearts by the promises of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus, through whom we have access to you by the Spirit. Amen.